All right. Awesome. Great. I'm going to... This is always the hardest part about letting you greet each other, is it? It's so hard to reel you back in. We, um, we're really excited at uh, just what uh, is happening in our community, uh, what God is doing among us, um, the shifts that are happening, and uh, it's really encouraging to see the relationships forming. Uh, and for some of us, uh, really experiencing a genuine church community for the first time, I'm really excited about that. And so um, you guys make this happen, and I'm very proud uh, of what God has been doing uh, among us in the last few, um, the last year, was the last few years. We've only been around for a year. Uh, but even in the last few weeks, we had a tremendous prayer time here on Wednesday uh, in this room and just was able to pray uh, not only for uh, space and building, but also for the future generations that God is uh, putting on our hearts to reach uh, youth, college students, um, those kinds of things. And so really excited about just our time of prayer uh, with one another. How many of you guys enjoyed that when you, that you were here Wednesday? It was just, yeah, awesome. So uh, thank you. Uh, we're, uh, we launched a series called Big City, Big Question. It's based off of a video project that we did last year and again this year. And what we did is we took questions that people came up with and we said, well, we're going to take those and over the next six weeks, we're going to um, design a teaching series out of it. And so the first two weeks, we looked at, um, you know, the Bible and is it trustworthy? Is it reliable? Last week, uh, Mike led us and we looked at the person of Jesus, who he was. Is he God really? And is he really the only way to, to God the Father? And so this week, we're looking at the question of evil and suffering. Uh, and typically, this has been called the problem of evil. And uh, the way that the question is phrased is, why would a good God allow evil and suffering? All right, so that's kind of the, that's the phraseology of the question. We, uh, I, I chose Job chapter 2 and Luke chapter 13, not because we were going to jump into it and go line by line or, or really take a, a deep look uh, into those passages. I'm going to definitely refer to them. But what I wanted to show was that right off the bat that the Bible was written in a way where it, it directly confronts this issue. Um, it directly addresses the issue of evil and suffering. Uh, it takes the initiative. As a matter of fact, the book of Job is thought to be one of the oldest books in the Bible. And if that's, if that's true, then that means that one of the oldest books of the Bible uh, is written to address the problem of evil and suffering. Um, but then also it, it talks about God's goodness in the midst of it. Luke chapter 13, as we were reading that, I don't know, if you, maybe you read it again. If you read that again, it's kind of like, wow, that's a really difficult passage. I'm, I'm glad I'm not like expositionally teaching that passage this morning. But that's a really hard passage um, that, that, um, that we have there. Because what happens is that Jesus is also not avoiding the subject. As a matter of fact, he's actually saying, well, what do you guys think about that accident that happened? Like, what about those 18 people that died for no good reason other than a building fell on? What do you guys think about it, right? And so he directly handles and, and talks about this, um, this uh, subject. Uh, and so I thought it was worth us um, uh, pointing out that the Bible um, pulls no punches when it comes to this uh, issue. Um, I also want to share uh, that uh, this question was a tremendous source of anxiety for me as a young person. Um, as a 24-year-old, this question actually launched me into a two-year um, uh, battle, I guess. Uh, I felt like it was siphoning the oxygen of my faith, 
Um, and I've talked to many people uh, as well, and this, is also, this has also been a point of contention with them in regards to the existence of God and faith. And I felt like for me that it, began, it, was, it was like a chokehold. I felt like this question had a chokehold on me. Because what derived from this question was eventually, then, is God fair? Right? And then from that question is, what about those who die? Like, I'm okay with those who die and then are Christians, so they get to go to heaven and spend the rest of eternity with him. But what about those who have never heard about God and a mountain crashed over them? Like, and so it, it brought those questions. And then along with those questions, then, is the Bible really trustworthy? Like, if, if this is the case? Like, and from that, if the Bible's not trustworthy, then is there really even the existence of God? What do I believe in anyways? But I remember the catalytic moment for me in regards to asking this question. I was probably about a 16, 17-year-old uh, teenager. And I was a youth leader in my church group. And I walked into a hospital. We were doing hospital visitations. And uh, we went to pray for a very close uh, family friend of ours. And his daughter was dying of cancer. And she was only three years old. And her name was Amy. And I remember walking into that room. And she was like, she was completely bald from the um, radiation and uh, she had all the tubes in her nose and she was completely knocked out and I just remember praying over her and felt so empty in my prayers and just remember asking myself God how, how why she's so innocent she's so innocent and so um, it really uh, is a personal journey of mine uh, to 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 really begin to start thinking through God either you're God, but you're not very good because you allowed evil and suffering to happen, or um, I, I just don't quite understand uh, this at all, and do you really, if that's the case, do you really exist? Uh, and I didn't realize that this is a question uh, that has been raised for at least a few hundred years, um, but then it's, it's also an issue that has been addressed from the very um, kind of dawn of the age, that over the centuries, people have tried to address this in many different ways. I didn't have a really uh, a strong wake-up call. It wasn't like, you know, something hit me over the head and I realized that, you know, God is good and evil and suffering exists and it's all okay. But I remember at 25, somebody suggested a book to me, um, The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. And I remember reading through that. And although, um, as I was reading through it, I had... A couple of other questions arise. I remember for the first time that I was actually thinking through some of my doubts. Okay, so it was no longer just somebody in the church saying, "Hey, just believe, just have faith." But um, this book actually helped me to kind of be, begin to just think through doubts. Okay, it was a two-year process for me, but it was a tool in which I began to think through some of the doubts that I was having. As a matter of fact, I began to begin, uh, from that point on, I began to have doubts in my doubts. Um, so today, um, uh, I do think what I'm going to talk about is biblical, <laughs> uh, but, but most of what I'm having to share today, um, I'm deriving it from three resources that have been very helpful for me, and these men are much smarter than me, and so you would do so much better if you just read these books, okay? So I'm going to throw this out there uh, as a resource for you guys, but uh, the, problem of pain, the Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis, I just mentioned that. Um, he does kind of a defense of the idea uh, that um, God uses pain. Uh, another work is God, Freedom, and Evil um, by Alvin Plantiga. And it's more philosophical, okay? Um, so it's a bit of a harder read, but it's only about 90 pages. So. 
And then uh, pastorally, um, a, a very tremendous book that I read last year, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller. He's a pastor out in New York City. So uh, all, different sub- uh, all different books addressing the same subject from kind of different points of view. So I want to commend these books to you. Most of what I'm talking about today um, comes from, from these books. Um, Scottish philosopher David Hume, he quotes Epicurus, who's from the 4th century, and uh, this is what Epicurus said. Is God willing to prevent evil, evil, evil? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is not malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then where comes evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? And this is the problem of evil stated. Three points where it says God is omnipotent and omniscient. Second point is God is completely good. But third point is there is suffering and evil in the world. And many people think that because three is the third one, the third point is true, that either point one or point two is false. Okay? And that's the problem of evil. This is the problem that has been argued for centuries and centuries and one that we probably won't fix this morning. But we're going to talk about it. Uh, The skeptic says that because three is true, one or two must not be true. Uh, The honest truth is that after many centuries of philosophy and arguing, that most people believe that this isn't a valid uh, valid argument against God anymore. That there has been kind of enough rebuttal to to kind of like say, okay, this isn't like a great argument against the existence of God. So we're not going to go there. We're not going to talk about how this proves or disproves God at all. Um, But I want to make the same observation that Tim Keller makes. He says that even if you remove God, the problem of evil and suffering still stands. As a matter of fact, when you remove God, you have less of a resource now to deal with it. There's less hope. There's less universal morality to talk about evil. How can you even talk about evil if you don't talk about a universal standard, right? And so um, we're not going to go down that route, but I'm just saying. I'm throwing that observation out there as a few for thought. Uh, I want to talk about two different ways to think about um, how God works alongside evil and, evil and suffering. And there's a, a word that um, describes that. It's called theodicy. And theodicies are basically just justifications for God's way of working with human beings, especially in regards to evil and suffering. Uh, there are many, many theodicies. Uh, some of them are completely bogus. Some of them are pretty good, and they're going to leave you wanting. As a matter of fact, all theodicies, if you look at each one of them, none of them are like great by themselves. Um, but what they all try to do is they try to ask this question, uh, answer this question, why God? Why God? Is my baby here? Where did Linda take my baby? Okay. I need my baby. Can you find my baby, Kelly? Okay. <laughs> the first theodicy that we're going to look at is uh, it's called the free will theodicy. There's many, many. We're just going to look at two just to kind of give you a flavor. The first one is called the free will theodicy. And those of you guys who have studied philosophy, you've read um, kind of this theodicy before. Uh, but it essentially it states that God created us not to be robots or animals of instinct, but free rational agents with the ability to choose and with choosing the ability to therefore love. Okay? So um, there he goes. Uh, this theodicy also assumes, yeah, you can bring him up here. It also assumes that the root of evil, now that we're like uh, completely distracted, 
The root of evil is originated in humanity because it originates in choice. The evil is manifested in our human behavior. Um, and so uh, historic Christianity says that evil actually res- uh, uh, originates in our sin, our motives, that human beings author evil. Okay? You guys seen Back to the Future? Like, tremendous movie, right? You love it, right? Um, and so there's Uncle Joe. Do you guys remember Uncle Joe in the movie? He's, uh, he's Marty's uncle who's in jail, <laughs> right? And so he's in jail, and he's, like, going on probation, but then he, like, I don't know, like, he, he can't, whatever. Like, he's in jail. And so Marty goes back to the past, and uh, he sees Uncle Joe as a little baby, right? So here's my illustration. <laughs> so, hey! So Uncle Joe's about this size. And uh, he's looking at Uncle Joe in the crib behind some bars, and he says to Uncle Joe, do you guys remember the line? He says, you better get used to that. <laughs> right? And, um, and so, what, but think about this, though. What if, okay, so, so now Marty, Marty has more information than like Uncle Joe and the family at that point. Because why? He's traveled to the future, right? So he, he is, he's, he's not omnipotent, but he has more knowledge. He knows more. And so with that power, what could Marty do to prevent Uncle Joe from getting in the slammer? I mean, he could do a myriad of things, right? Like he could like, uh, uh, you know, like, just make sure that Uncle Joe doesn't go anywhere. And every step that Uncle Joe takes, you know, that he is going to, he's going to be there. And he can warn his, uh, his, his mom, Uncle Joe's older sister, and she can watch every single step, right? And so think about, <laughs> think about this. He was, this is, this is my little guy, Abraham. Uh, and Abraham was with, Abraham was with Dane and Esther's kid the other day, and they were, like, into each other and all that stuff, right? And so imagine if he hits, like, Dane and Esther's kid, um, Keenan, over the head with the baton. Like, it just smacks him over the head. And I'm like, man, wow, this kid, like, he's got evil inside of him, right? I'm going to do everything possible, and he steals the mic all the time. I'm going to do everything possible to keep him from hurting people in the future because I have the power to do it, and we can start now. Here we go. Duct tape fixes everything. <laughs> All I need to do is hold on to him. Right? <laughs> like, I can fix this kid real quick. All I got to do is fix this kid. I'm not going to do it. Right. Yeah. Now, What's the problem with me using duct tape to keep the evil at bay? It's going to fix the issue, isn't it? There's no chance that he would ever hurt Keenan again. Right? Thanks, buddy. You can have a seat. (laughs) God can use divine duct tape. But at at that point... What's love anyways? What's life at that point? If that's God's way of fixing evil, is to truly remove our free will. So that's the theodicy of free will. This is what Alvin Plantinga says. Um, he says, A world containing creatures who are significantly free and free to perform more good than evil actions is more valuable, all else being equal, than a world containing no free creatures at all. And the fact that free creatures sometimes go wrong, however, counts neither against God's omnipotence nor his goodness. 
For he could have foresaw the occurrence of moral evil only by removing the possibility of moral good. And this is the world that God has said that I'd, I'd rather see that kid free than have to use divine duct tape. Right? Because by using this, what you end up doing is that you remove the possibility for moral good. And that's the free will theodicy. There's the natural law theodicy. Uh, we're only going to talk about two. <clears throat> and natural law theodicy says that God created a world that has natural order to it. It could be random and operating differently uh, at every moment. But if we break these natural laws, they must rebound on us. Like they have some kind of effect on us if we break those laws. For example, imagine a physical world without a law of gravity. But if we have gravity, then if you jump off a cliff, what would happen to you? You're either hurt or killed, right? It doesn't matter if you're a good person or a bad person. Both guys jump off the cliff, something bad's going to happen to them, right? Um, without natural laws, life is impossible. But suffering is also inevitable. Um, C.S. Lewis puts it this way, that if you hit somebody in the head with a baton, with a wooden bat, at the moment of impact, God is not going to transform that wood into grass, okay? Because he would violate natural law. It's kind of like a chess game, right? Okay? Curtis, can you come up here and illustrate this with me? So, um, I'm, I'm not really good at chess, okay? And so, uh, <laughs> he's serious. <laughs> he's, he's, yeah, he's ready to go. So, chess is only fun if we play according to the rules, right? Okay, so make a move. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to make my move, okay? Yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, I'll take your rook too, right? But if you want to, if you want to go back and, and think of a different move, you can do that if you want. I think I'm already done. <laughs> right. You took my game. Okay. <laughs> so, was this a fun game, Curtis? No, no it wasn't fun. Right? Okay. You can have a seat too. All right. So, the. <laughs> I'm just demolishing everybody on the stage today. <laughs> so according to natural law theodicy, um, like there are times, like uh, my brother and I, we used to play this uh, rule called touch move. And that's kind of like basically like the, it's, it's a rule in chess where if you touch it, you have to move it, right? Did you ever play it, right? And so there are times when like if we play touch move, if I'm feeling graceful and I'll say, you know what? Okay, that was a bonehead move you can take that move back and do it again, right? And so there are occasions in chess where you might, like, be graceful. But imagine if every single play you were graceful to that person and, and you, you allow them any kind of, like, move that they wanted to make and the rook can go anywhere they wanted to go and, and you can just start taking pieces off the board randomly and if you can just start positioning your pieces on the board randomly and you start overturning all the rules, then at that point, what is life? And so natural law theodicy is basically saying that what's the point if God intervenes in every single point and he's breaking natural laws, right? Um, so C.S. Lewis, um, this is actually, uh, this is a great illustration that C.S. Lewis uses in his book. And so he says this, so it is with the life of souls in a world. Fixed laws, consequences unfolding by causal necessity, the whole natural order are at once limits within which their common life is confined and also the sole condition under which any such life is possible. He's saying that this is the game, 
That God is, this is, this is how God governs and rules. And he says, try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involved, and you will find that you have excluded life itself. If you remove free will and natural law, you've gotten rid of life. What's the point? There are other theodicies. There's the judgment theodicy. There's the greater good theodicy. Ultimately, none of these theodicies do a fantastic job at explaining the why God question. But if you begin to put some of these together, um, you get some kind of semblance of why God allows certain things to happen. And even from our perspective, though, they may be the most heinous things, and he has the power to do it. He has the power to intervene. He still allows it anyways. Um, because there's a reason. Um, as a matter of fact, um, I think there, the reason why there isn't like one theodicy that explains it all, and it's kind of naive of us to think that we can do that, uh, it's actually kind of prideful for us to think that we can explain why God allows uh, everything to happen. But I also think this is the point of the book of Job. If you ever get a chance to really carefully read through the book of Job, you'll find that although there are times when Job pushes his limits to ask the big question, why God is this happening to me? At the very end, Job never receives an answer. At least not, not a coherent, convincing answer as to why God allowed things to happen. So I think the Bible gives us a little bit of a precedent to say, you know what, it's okay. You can, these are borders in which you can tread. These are borders in which you are allowed. And there are th- pictures and analogies in which help us to cope and to deal with situations and, you know, beheadings on TV and all that stuff, that there is a way in which you can kind of think through some of these things so that you don't end up in a place of doubt, but you end up in a place of trust. There is a way for you to do that. But at the end of the day, it's a place of pride and arrogance to think that we can figure out the mind of God. I want to stop the philosophy at this point. Um... Because the nature of why questions are, are this. That even if you get several good answers to your questions, that if you find that there's something still unsatisfactory about that, that it's, it's no longer an issue of intellectual doubt, but it's an issue of your heart. That if the answers are coming, and they're logical, and they're probable, and it just doesn't seem to satisfy... At that point, you're not wrestling with intellectual logic or doubt as much as there's something about your heart that is bent in a way where you cannot believe in the goodness of God. Right? I think that's why Jesus, he just kind of, he doesn't mince his, word, uh, mince his words in Luke chapter 13. He gets them this like this really terrible situation. What do you guys think about those 18 people that died and the tower fell on them? And they're like, I don't know. He says, then you repent. <laughs> it's just kind of, he's just like, he didn't point any punches. He doesn't try to give a theodicy. He just says, you know, guys, I don't know what to tell you guys. How's your life? That could be you. Any day. How are you living today? He doesn't mince his words. He doesn't pull any punches. He gets to the heart of the matter. Just because we don't see reasons for why God allows things to happen doesn't mean that they don't exist, right? But it's not our job to demand from God all of the answers to every hurt and pain that we experience in the world. Uh, Plantinga later says in his book, 
Um, he uses his analogy of a pup tent. And it's a tent where you keep a pup in it, I guess. That's why they call it a pup tent. And he says, suppose I tell you, look inside the tent and let me know if you see a St. Bernard. Okay? And then you look in the tent. And if there was a St. Bernard in the pup tent, what do you think you'd see? A St. Bernard, right? Okay. <laughs> and so I have reasonable, I have reasonable, um, um, you know, uh, it's reasonable for me to then turn to Curtis, let's say, and say, hey, did you see a St. Bernard in there? And if he said yes, I have reason to believe you. Why? Because it's pretty darn hard of me to, say, uh, to miss a St. Bernard, right? But if I turn to Curtis, I said, hey, look in the pub tent and let me know if you see a no You know what a no is? A noceum is a very, very, very tiny gnat with a really, really big bite. You can Google the images, pretty nasty rashes. Um, they call it a noceum. Can you guess why? Because you can't see them, right? And so imagine if I said, Curtis, now go and look inside a, the tent to see if you, have, you see a noceum. It would be harder for me to take his uh, answer yes or no at face value because it's very hard to see a noceum. And God's reasons sometimes we think should be a St. Bernard, but oftentimes they're a no And oftentimes just because God has, just because we can't think of a reason for something, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have one. It's a place of pride to assume that just because we can't think of a reason for something to happen, that God doesn't have one himself. And that's, again, not an issue of logic. It's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of pride. Um, I want to move on to another uh, uh, idea, and that's natural evil. We've talked primarily about moral evil. And like I said, there's so many other theodicies, but I want to give us kind of a flavor of, um, of just, um, you know, how to begin to think through some of these questions. So somebody might say to you, okay, well, that's moral evil. Humans can be responsible for that. I get that. But what about natural evil? What about the things that just, like, randomly happen, you know? What about cancer? What about diseases? What about natural disasters? What about accidents? What about those things? And so, I'm, to be honest with you, uh, so underqualified and not even prepared to, uh, to tackle this question. So we're going to limit this to a two-minute conversation. Um, but um, yeah, there's many different theories for how things happen. And if you guys have studied chaos theory or at least read any like, uh, white papers on it. It's really interesting because out of chaos theory, people have made this theory of the butterfly effect. You've heard of that before? So a butterfly flaps its wings down in North Africa and it changes like the climate up in you know, Antarctica or something like that, right? I've oversimplified it, but essentially that's the butterfly effect, right? And so um, there's also a movie with Gwyneth Paltrow called Sliding Doors. And so you've seen that before? Okay, so butterfly effect. And so there's is an idea that we, we have no clue what we're doing to other people on the other side of the world because we, we aren't in control of our actions. And so every little action leads to something else. So I'm not saying that every natural disaster is, has come from our actions, but we, we just don't know the amount of responsibility that we take on um, by the decisions that we make, okay? So that's the first thing. Second thing is natural order. Same thing, I, uh, you know, kind of using the same argument earlier for moral evil. In natural order, there's cause and effect, right? If you bust somebody in the head with a bat, what's going to happen? They're just going to hurt and they're going to bleed, right? And so in the same, if a tree falls on somebody randomly, that's a part of natural order, right? And so it doesn't, like, make the suffering less, 
but it helps you to understand that these are natural, natural things, right? Um, and then thirdly, you see this in the book of Job, and um, philosophers like Alvin Plantiga argue um, highly for this, that there are also supernatural causes for natural evil, okay? Things that we are unaware of, things that we can't see. And so that you see in the book of Job, um, Satan is involved in some of the natural evils that not only caused Job's suffering, but took away the life of his, of, of his family and children. And so um, uh, supernatural causes for natural evil. But here's a thought, and I want us to kind of think about this. How less devastating would natural evil be if moral evil was completely eliminated? Imagine if there was no, like, human evil and that kind of suffering. And the only suffering that we would have to endure are accidents and natural disasters and things. How much less devastating would it be for us to just have to cope with that? Because everybody would have lived a good life. Everybody would have lived a life worthy of our celebration. So even when an accident happened, although it isn't like take away, you know, we can't take away the sadness, there isn't this, like, incomplete feeling. Right, there isn't this regret, and so I'm not saying that that's you know, uh, and that's not a philosopher's argument. That's just mine. It may not be a strong one, but there's something about a life lived fulfilled and a life lived without regrets and without sin that's worth celebrating, even if at the end of the day they see death and decay. Right. As a matter of fact, if you remove moral evil, I would say that you've defamed, like you've taken the fangs out of evil and death, if you remove sin and suffering. So let me move on to the second part of the problem of evil, all right? So is God capable of removing uh, evil and suffering? Yes, but he's not going to do it by breaking his laws, and he's not going to do it by divine duct tape. So, okay, so that's his choice. But does that mean he's a good God? Can you trust him? Is he a loving God? Um. For some people, even evil and suffering isn't a matter of logic. And again, I don't, like I know some of your situations and I know my own life situations. And so it doesn't always like process here. That pain and suffering is very like visceral, right? It's very internal. It's like, it's a moral logic. It's the same kind of logic that a, a woman says, I'm never going to marry because I saw the way my father treated my, my mother, and if that's what a husband is, I don't want one. And a lot of, a lot of uh, moral logic against a good God comes from that. There's just something inside of you that just won't allow you to trust and believe that there is a God that is loving because of all this chaos around them. Right? I want none of it. I want to say this, that if, if that's the suffering that you feel, and it's less of a lot like intellectual, philosophical one, but it's an internal one, I want to ask for permission to, to pastor you this morning. Because that kind of suffering is not easily undone. It's a, it's a, it's a suffering of betrayal. It's a suffering of lack of trust. It's a suffering of um, an accumulation of life events that has caused the heart to become bitter. I want to bring the only message that we know how to bring as a church. And that's the message of Jesus and the gospel. And the gospel message says this, that Jesus has endured all the sufferings of the world on the cross. He knows the pain 
He, he relates to the hurt. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just a physical torment that he endured. It was an ultimate act of betrayal. If you read through the Gospels and you learn about how Jesus ended up on the cross, it's because his closest fellow mates were the ones to turn him in. That his right-hand man, Peter, in the midst of all this chaos and Jesus being arrested, when asked, do you know that man? I've seen you with him in Nazareth. He turns away and he says, no, I don't know him. And the gospel story is about the Son of God, Jesus, experiencing every single instance and every kind of typology of suffering that you and I have experienced. And so that when he was on the cross, it wasn't just like a symbolic thing. But the scripture says that every sin and weight of the world was placed on him in that moment. Everything that we endure was placed on him. And just when you think the suffering is enough, just when you think that the betrayal was, you couldn't get more, uh, you know, heinous than the betrayal of a friend, Jesus looks up at his Father in heaven, God, the creator of humanity in the universe, and he asks God, why, Father, why, God, have you forsaken me in this moment? Because it, the Bible says that in that moment, God turned his face away from Jesus. And it's hard to understand why God would allow Jesus to experience that magnitude of suffering. I want to say this, that the Christian hope is not so much that Jesus will explain every single instance of evil and suffering to you, especially the ones that you're suffering this morning. But along the way as you're walking with him, he will always be able to say, I know what you mean. I understand. Man, that's a tough one. I remember when. Can you imagine, like, my son Justin was going to do another son illustration, but he's, oh, there you are. Hey, Justin, there you are. Okay. Stay back there. <laughs> I said to you, Justin, I love you. I'm so proud of you. I've got something tough for you to do. We're going somewhere. You've got no friends there. You'll, you'll feel lonely for at least the first two years, buddy. But there's people out there that I think we've got something to offer to them. And I think you can do it. It's going to hurt. You're going to hate me sometimes. You're going to look at me and you're going to say, why? Why? But in the, the payoff, buddy, the payoff is going to be huge. It's going to be tremendous. And, and you guys should talk to Justin sometimes. He'll tell you. He'll, he'll tell you what a 13-year-old suffers from in terms of isolation and having to make friends. You're good now, though, right? <laughs> okay. The son suffered so much because he knew that there was glory to be found. So one day, he's going to have the same stories to relate with those sons and daughters that he brought to glory with him. Can you imagine the conversations that God the Father and Jesus had? The amount of coaching? Like, I'm not, Jesus was never disobedient. But you get, you get this idea that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's sweating drops of blood, he's a, he's a basket case, just to let you know, okay? Like, he wasn't like, let's roll. I mean, that wasn't, I mean, 
sweating drops of blood. Some of you guys have anxiety issues. Jesus had tremendous anxiety issues that evening. A basket case. He knows the suffering. It's difficult to to give you the reasons for everything. Um, The Bible doesn't do it. Um, It gives you a framework to think through it. But despite not knowing why God allows you to suffer, one thing is for sure. The gospel reminds you that it's not because he doesn't love you. And it's not because he hasn't experienced it himself. There's something unique about the Christian faith. Nor the faith says this, that God became man to suffer with you. It's the only worldview. Um, I look back on my seasons of doubt, um, and they were hard. Like they were, I, if you ever want to know, uh, sit down with me, and I'll tell you what ages 24, 25, and 26 were like for me. Um, and I thought it was a chokehold. Like I really thought that like these questions and these doubts were like just siphoning oxygen from my faith. And I think back now, and it's about, how old am I? It's about like two years now. <laughs> it's been about 10 years now. I'm 34, a young 34. And I look back, and I think of it less of a chokehold now. And I feel like those times of doubt, especially with evil and suffering, it was more of a firm embrace than it was a chokehold. Because in that firm embrace, what it did is it, it caused me to think differently. It caused me to think through my faith and my doubts. It brought me back to this idea that in the resurrection of Jesus, it wasn't just an Easter story, but it was an objective event that showed that God has begun to overtake all evil and suffering. Look, it has begun. It will be brought to completion. In Jesus, in his resurrection, is the complete defeat of sin, evil, and suffering. It has begun. It has begun. And God will see it to completion. And at the end of the day, there will be no questions left. There will be no tears to wipe. That's the faith and that's the hope of the gospel. Um, It doesn't mean that we don't suffer pain now. But it means this, that the venom, the venom of pain and evil is no longer in our veins. We may suffer the bite, but we don't have to suffer the the death that comes with the venom. Um, I want to close with this. And Van, you guys can come up if you'd like. Why did Jesus say in Luke 13, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish? Let's think about that for a sec. Can you put that verse back up there, Curtis? Like, why would Jesus address these people? They brought up the issue. They said, hey, Jesus, did you hear about that tragic thing where Pilate killed all those worshipers and he did the worst thing that you could do? He mixed their own blood with the sacrifice. Like, that's cruel. And Jesus says, yeah, man, but you guys, like, you, you repent or you'll perish likewise. Let me up one. <laughs> Let me up you one. Did you hear about those 18 people 
that just died like randomly, like with no. Are, were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No, they weren't. But if you guys don't repent, you'll perish just like them. Is Je- Where's Jesus' compassion? It's there. You see, Jesus' compassion is not for those who are dead anymore. It was for those who were still alive. You know, we are so fortunate that this is how we deal with suffering. It's through notes and intellect and logic and philosophy and books. We are so fortunate that this is how we deal with suffering, that it's a thought experiment for a lot of us. And Jesus says, you, you're, not, you're not even ready. You're not even equipped to deal with suffering. Change the way that you're living your life today. Repent. Change your life. Because when that day comes, then you're, you'll be ready. It's not a thought experiment. It's not a thought experiment. So Jesus is giving hope to the people. Change the way that you're living. Change your mind. Last three things. He's very compassionate about our church. He's very compassionate for Trinity life. He's saying to each one of us, watch your life. Watch your life. If your life is not in order, when it comes, it'll hurt. Number two, he's saying, don't suffer alone, church. Uh... I've got some stuff in my family uh, that happened this weekend, my extended family. I just want to share with you guys. It hurts. I don't want to suffer alone. I can't wait to get around you guys and have you pray for me. You have the gift of the body. Don't suffer alone. And number three is persevere in your suffering. Don't turn to sin. Do what Job did. Turn to God. Don't turn to sin. Persevere in your suffering so that the gospel can shine through you. Let's pray. God, this morning, I just pray for those of us who are in a place of doubt, in a place of um, just moral opposition to you, because everything about their life just seems to point that you're not a good God. Lord, would you cut through the noise even right now? Would you cut through the past experiences and reveal yourself as a good father? who would not even withhold his only son for our own good. And God, would you teach us as a community to be a suffering community, that we would suffer with one another, and we would do it with integrity, not because we're you know, sadistic or anything, but Lord, because the value of carrying one another burdens transcends any intellectual doubt that we have when it comes to your goodness. So Lord, I pray that we would live out your new commandment that says, love one another as I have loved you, as you love one another. The world would know that you are my disciples. Lord, I pray for those of us who are hurting especially this morning because of broken relationships, because of their own sin. Look before you. This is me talking to you this morning, guys. Look before you. Trust in Jesus. He has suffered it all for you. He is trustworthy. Trust Him with your situation. 
Trust Him with your decisions. Don't back away from the pain. Press into it. He will prove Himself faithful. So Lord, be with us. Guide us. Lead us.